Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And my guest is Sam Alberry, who is in Atlanta, but the moment he opens his mouth, you're going to know he's not from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, he is from the UK. Sam, welcome to the table. We're really glad to be able to, to have this conversation with you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. Pleasure. Now, Sam works with the Ravi Zacharias' ministry. He travels uh, globally. He's actually headquartered out of uh, Oxford. And uh, But the discussion that we're going to have is going to be on the whole area of of, uh, of same-sex attraction and the th- issues associated with that, and he's going to help us kind of negotiate where evangelicalism is on this topic. So I guess the first question is, uh, how did you get into this gig? What, 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 is, what expertise do you bring to the area, and how, uh, how have you been drawn into this conversation? Thank you very much. It's um, personal experience is the short answer. Okay. So I grew up not being a, a Christian believer, but beginning to realize in my teen- teenage years that I was attracted to men rather than attracted to women. And sort of just before I really had a, an opportunity to act on that, I became a Christian. Hmm. And so then one of the big questions I had to think through was where does Christianity and this whole issue intersect? What does Jesus think of this? What does being a disciple look like in the light of this experience? So I've had to really think this through for myself as a follower of Jesus. And I had no intention at that point of of being public about it. But uh, a few years ago, really felt the Lord leading me to kind of speak a bit more personally on the issue. And so whatever expertise I I may or may not have has really come through having to wrestle with this individually. And prior to to doing what I'm doing now, I was a a pastor in the Church of England. So the issue often came up pastorally as well. Hmm. So um, let me ask you this question. So how... How did or didn't the church help you navigate this as you were wrestling with it once you became a Christian? In other words, what kind of support did you or did you not receive in the midst of the process? Well, for the first several years, I didn't tell anyone. So there was no help or support because I I wasn't open about it. But the reason I wasn't open about it was because nothing in the church culture I was in at that time gave me any kind of signal that this was an issue Christians deal with. So I I was very much feeling a sense of shame, feeling a sense of fear that I would be rejected by my Christian community. Um, People frequently use the word gay as a pejorative. And so all of those signals just made me feel as though I'm not supposed to be dealing with this as a Christian. Something has gone terribly wrong. And the issue was never raised in any kind of pastoral context. So so for that reason, I, I never felt really that it was, it was going to be safe for me to speak about this. In fact, uh, the culture was so clear about that that it made you extremely hesitant to come forward and think about it? It did. And eventually, um, a few years later, a, a pastor at a different church did raise the issue in a, in a sermon he was preaching. And he raised it as a pastoral issue, not just as a a kind of cultural issue. 
And he even said this will be an issue for a number of us here this morning, and if that's you, please know that you're not on your own, and we would love to walk with you through this. Hmm. And that was the very first time I felt as though I had permission to kind of say, oh, actually, this is an issue for me. So I did then begin to share um, initially with him and then with close friends, and that was game-changing, just to have other people aware of it and to feel like I was a bit more known as a result of that. Mm-hmm. And just to have people who who could encourage me, who could journey with me, just made a huge difference. It, it stopped being this, this secret thing that only I knew about. Mm. And certainly as a pastor with this and many other issues, I now see the value of actually of having, you know, of being open, walking in the light, um, and just, I think, how much the devil must love secrecy. Hmm. If it's just a secret in my head, mm-hmm. the devil can blow it out of all proportion. Hmm. Whereas, one of the things that most encouraged me as I shared with friends was how how they didn't react massively. They just were kind of, oh, okay, that's interesting, really appreciate you sharing that. It wasn't cataclysmic to them to discover this about me, which made me think it's not actually that big a deal. Because hmm. I had thought it was going to be this all-consuming kind of issue to raise with them. So actually, that in a, help, in a sense helped me get it into a, a better perspective. Hmm. So um, I've got two sets of questions. Let me, let me start there. How far in to your Christian experience did that experience take place? I mean... What kind of time frame are we talking about? Um, probably eight, nine years into my Christian faith. Oh, wow. But I started actually opening up to others, so I'd have been in my late 20s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so I take it that the, the um, I, I don't know how else to describe it, the, the calmness or the naturalness with which this was, ex- was uh, accepted by those around you really helped move you ahead in terms of of um saying this this is this disclosure if i can say it this way is is worth the risk of disclosing oh very much so and it was such a blessing and the the wonderful thing was it it had the effect of making what were already good friendships even stronger because i was suddenly sharing at a very very personal level Mm mm-hmm and that meant the other person in the friendship would start sharing a bit more deeply about things in their life as well. And it, it just kind of put the friendship on a a much, much deeper footing. Hmm. So it actually was the opposite of what I had feared, which was I might lose friends. It actually made, it actually gave me more intimacy rather than less. Hmm. So the, res- uh, the good part of this story, of course, is, is that the people who were around you had responded well, and in the process, uh, uh, a, a good process opened up. Yeah, very much so. Hmm. Okay, so um, so so this happened, and then down the road, I take it um, you pursued your discipleship, and just talk about your ministry in general first, and then we'll we'll focus in a little more. So yeah, I was working for a church um, for a number of years. Really felt more of a burden to speak to this issue and realized we needed a few voices that could address this issue from the inside um, because it was becoming such a big deal culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, so began tentatively to firstly open up to my own church family. Uh, once that had sort of 
gone well and the dust had settled, um, I began to write on it, um, initially with a couple of online articles and then with a, uh, with a short book. And then really I suddenly realized at that point that there was, there was just an enormous need um, to have teaching on this. This was about five years ago I started to, to speak on it. Um, and I just had not anticipated, A, how big the need would be, and B, actually how comfortable I would be talking about it. I, I didn't know what it would be like hmm. talking about something that personal, but found myself actually just being able to do so quite calmly, and it didn't freak me out, didn't seem to freak other people out. So very quickly found myself... Um, getting invitations from all over the place really to, to begin addressing this. Hmm. And the last two or three years working with the Brandy Zacharias Ministries, there's been a lot more capacity to to kind of speak into this issue as well. And my, my real burden I think is is trying to help the church to, to kind of be places of, of clarity and compassion and community on this. So hmm. I try and prioritize training pastors, helping build up the, the local church, because I think that is going to be God's strategy on this issue, is having strong local churches. Okay, well, that's a great overview, and that helps set up our conversation. Uh, so thanks, Sam, for, for sharing that. Let's, uh, let's transition, and, and let's talk about the local church for a second, because most of the stuff that we hear about happens at a national level and you know how do you step into the debate how do you step into the cultural space all those kinds of things we can save that for later uh, on in the podcast I think a good place to start is to say what's the core advice that you would give uh, to people in the local churches particularly leaders about the tone that they set and what they say to their people about uh, about this and and how important that is for uh, for creating an environment in which someone like you would be comfortable in in coming forward and trusting the community with with this conversation. I think that the single most important thing is to put this issue back in the gospel framework. It seems to me that most of the trouble we've we've gotten ourselves into as churches and as church leaders on this is because we've we've kind of abstracted the issue of homosexuality out of a out of a gospel framework and then we don't know what to do with it so my, my main advice is to is to recognize the way the gospel always levels the playing field mm -hmm. and so not to think of homosexuality in isolation but to think of the fact that all of us are sexually fallen and sexually broken and to set the issue within that framework so that there's no no one is being looked down on or singled out. Uh, this issue isn't being spoken into from a presumed position of superiority. Um, if we if we come at it with this culture of actually, the gospel puts all of us in the same boat, mm -hmm. ultimately, then I think that will make the issue safe to talk about whatever someone's sexual struggle might happen to be. But if the baseline is, hey, all of us, all of us are sexual sinners. All of us are fallen and, and disordered in this area of life, just as we are in every area of life. Then it becomes less of a big deal for someone to say, well, actually, my particular struggle is with same-sex attraction. Um, so rather than having this idea that 
most people are sexually normal and fine with a little struggle here and there but then there are those who struggle with homosexuality and that's really serious is to try and say no actually all of us are all of us are sexual strugglers all of us have areas in in this that we need we need encouragement where we need to repent and for some of us the the particular uh some of us will be disordered in a same-sex attraction kind of way others of us will be disordered in in an opposite sex attraction kind of way and not to not to single it out in that way i think that's the most important thing so in in the challenge here this I actually think uh, this fits the general challenge of the offer of the gospel in the world no matter what we're talking about mm. is um is the idea of we're all broken people in the in the role of the church is to invite people into the experience of the gospel and into the transformation that God is able to bring to life by being properly connected to him absolutely and Again, we are all the same mm-hmm. on that. The, and the, the, yeah, the Romans start, 3 makes that pretty clear. <laughs> exactly, which means we, whatever our own particular background is or whatever we've done in the past, someone else might be into something we've never even remotely been tempted by, mm-hmm. but we're still going to think, yeah, I'm no better than them. I'm not ultimately different to them. We're always far more like each other than we are unlike each other. And so the whole starting point of the gospel is is human need and human brokenness. And so we've got to have that culture of, hey, the whole reason we're Christians is because we know we're not right, rather than presuming that we are. So underneath that, I'm hearing uh, uh, a sensitivity to being careful not to create too much them and us in the conversation. Very much so. And that is not to say all sins are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. They're not. But I think the starting point is, is as you said, Romans 3, um, all alike have fallen short of the, of the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And so, again, ultimately, we are in the same boat. And then the differences we see between us in terms of our sinful nature suddenly are put in a healthy perspective. Uh, no one is fundamentally different to us. So it isn't them and us. It's it's all of us together. We're in this together as, as sinful people, as broken people. Our varieties of sinfulness will, will vary from person to person. So let's, let's help each other with that. Um, that's a good opportunity because if we all struggled with exactly the same thing, we wouldn't be much help. Mm-hmm. So there, there shouldn't really be a them and us at all on this, or, or on anything, because mm-hmm. it's differing and varying symptoms of the same ultimate disease and condition. Yeah, so that's very helpful. So, so I take it that helps to set the kind of tone that, is, that communicates a willingness to walk in uh, to this space with someone and to journey with them in relationship to both the invitation into and then after, uh, let's assume that they re- are responsive to the gospel, uh, an invitation to come alongside and, and walk with them uh, through the, the growth experience that we all go through when we come to the gospel and God begins to go to work on us. Exactly, exactly. And I just think if, if that is our theological starting point, it will just make us people who are going to be far more approachable. 
Okay. Um, anything? Any other advice you'd give to to local church pastors as they think about how to talk about this and approach it? Yes, I think the the other big thing is I'm I'm very very strong. I want pastors to be strong on on being theologically clear on this. But while that's necessary, it's not sufficient. And just because we're biblically orthodox doesn't mean our job as pastors is done. Mm-hmm. And so I'd want to say to people if if you're going to call people to submit to the teaching of Scripture on this issue, as we've understood it, we need to be doing everything we can as pastors to make sure our churches are, are places where that calling is seen to be viable and plausible. Um, which means if we're calling people away from ungodly forms of intimacy, we need to be making sure our churches are providing healthy forms of intimacy. Hmm. Otherwise, I think we're guilty of of what Jesus accused the Pharisees of, of, of putting burdens on people they can't carry. Hmm. If we're just saying, hey, you've got to be abstaining from any kind of sexual behavior that you feel inclined towards, but we're not actually providing friendship and a sense of family in our churches, then actually, I think we're we share some responsibility if people are feeling pushed out into unhealthy forms of relationship. So, and, and I'm, I'm going to say this a slightly different way, but it, I think it's trying to make the same point. You can be right theologically on what your position is, but if your your tone and relational elements aren't in place, you still there's still work to do. Very much so, yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Because I, I, I often, uh, when I when I do address this, I often say it's not just in this area, but in several areas. You can be right, but if your tone is wrong and how you approach it, you're there's you're still wrong. I mean, it, it's it's wrong in an area, but it but it reflects an imbalance that isn't a reflection of what the gospel is supposed to be about. Exactly, and we see a, a type of that with with Peter in Galatians two, where he had his doctrine right, mm-hmm. but his behavior was. He was, there was a kind of culture to the way that he behaved that actually undermined the gospel he believed. Mm-hmm. And if, if Peter can fall into that, I'm, I'm sure all of us can. Yes, yeah, uh, great. Okay, so uh, that's kind of the local church perspective. Now let's step back and, and, and ask some broader questions, um, in particular about evangelicalism as a whole and how it tends to speak into the public square. And actually, I think this is a good transition, uh, having just discussed the right doctrine, but also the issues of tone in relationship to this. Um, Give me your assessment of how, and this is always dangerous to say evangelicalism is this one broad, single, sweeping stroke, Uh, but with that in place... um, uh, give me your take on on how well or poorly we're doing. What do you think are we doing well, and what do you think we need to work at? Well, certainly, I, I get to visit a wide variety of churches, and I, I I get to have a bit of a wide angle lens on this issue. And my observation is that actually, the vast majority of churches I see want to have both theological care and also that tone and sense of culture and how can we help, how can we be a blessing. So I'm I'm really encouraged by that. I think the disposition of the vast majority of churches that I've seen has been a healthy disposition of how can we how can we support our brothers and sisters who are wrestling with this? How can we reach out to our friends who aren't believers? Um, and that's encouraging. 
on the whole. I think there are still areas where people are dealing with this primarily in the category of it's a culture war issue and are not thinking of it as a pastoral issue. Um, so there, there's still there's still variety around there, but I think certainly certainly in the UK, and I think it's a little different in the US, I've seen broad evangelicalism actually coming together on this issue. Hmm. Um, everyone from kind of your, your very conservative type churches to sort of more charismatic. I'm seeing across, I, I get invited to all of them um, to, to provide kind of teaching and training on this. So I've been really encouraged by that, just seeing with, whereas other issues have sent us all in different directions, this seems to be, in my experience, in the UK at least, an issue where evangelicalism is, is pretty much coalescing. Okay. In other words, those who, who claim to be evangelical and for same-sex relationships are now looking much more marginal. I think there's, in the, in the US, my observation is that the evangelical world is still a bit more fragmented mm -hmm. on this. I think it's so much bigger that those, those kind of smaller disagreements and discussions become much bigger because there are whole tribes in each of them. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm seeing the same kinds of discussion going on that we have in the UK, but in the US, it just seems to be far more heated. Now, that's interesting, because I, I was going to ask you what that difference was, uh, and I've lived in the UK, so um, so let's. I want to explore that a little bit, because I think the uh, thinking through this cross-culturally is another angle that is a helpful way to think about this. Um, it would strike me, now this is a little bit from a distance, that in the UK, part of the struggle would be, and part of, part of what makes it different is, the amount of Christian believers in the UK is a much smaller percentage of the population than, than here in the US. That's one factor. And the other factor that I think would be in play in the UK that isn't as much in play in the US would be, in the UK, um, the Christians are much more mixed together uh, and given their theological breadth, whereas here we tend to be more segregated. The conservatives hang out with the conservatives, and the liberals hang out with the liberals, and and it, it's it's not as mixed as you get in the UK because of the state church difference for one factor among many. Um, I think that's true. I think our size is a factor as well. But but you not by not size. big enough a country to to avoid each other. Yes, exactly. You, you all the Christians. One, you're small in number, and two, you're all together uh, a lot. And so, um, the liberals and the conservatives really know each other in Britain, if I can say it that way. Uh, whereas yeah. here, generally speaking, you're speaking about one another, but you may not actually be at the same meetings very frequently, and that kind of thing. So, it, so that dynamic makes for one difference. Yeah. It also makes for a different kind of conversation because in any given assembly, you might have that mixture of presence in the UK that you probably don't have oftentimes in the US. So that would strike me as one difference. I'm going to lay out the table and then I'm going to just let you talk. Um, a second difference that I see, and I think the reason why you see to some degree the heatedness that goes on, is because the different groups here are big enough individually um, in the various 
groupings that they group together in that you you can form very distinct identities as groups, uh, which produces an inherent I'm a, I don't know how else to describe this an inherent tribal element in the conversation that's probably absent uh, to a degree in the UK. I think that's true, and I think something that is slowly changing that is 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 the fact that we have global connectivity with the internet. I'm seeing in the UK now a bit more of that than there has been that kind of tribal mentality because you can be part of a virtual tribe. <laughs> right. If you plug into these these other guys in the states and these particular networks. But I think you're right in in the US whatever group you belong to is probably big enough that you can live your whole Christian life in it. You've got your own mm -hmm. seminary, you've got your own publishing house, and you don't have to, to do much peering over the fence to see what others are doing. Yeah, and why they're thinking, why they argue the way they do, all those kinds of things. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Here's... Um uh, here, here's another dimension, and you alluded to this, that I think is important. You, you said, when this conversation becomes part of culture war, that, and, I, and what I'm hearing underneath that is, when it becomes part of culture war, it risks being pulled away from the gospel frame. Um, I'd like for you to elaborate that on that a little bit, because I actually think that's a very important observation. Yeah, I, I, so I've... And again, I think this has been more of an issue in the States than it has in the UK. Sure. Because evangelicalism in the UK has been has, by, has been a minority for decades. Right. So we've never really had the same cultural influence. Was it 2 or 3% was, people maybe are evangelical in the UK? Is that too low or is that... Sounds probably about fair. Okay. Um, we, we have less... We have less of a cultural evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. The cultural Christianity we get in the UK is very different to the cultural Christianity in the US. Sure. It tends to be more formal and institutional and less culturally evangelical. So I think what, it, what I've seen in, in the kind of culture war mentality and posture is we have to fight the cultural forces that are bringing this about. That's our primary way of thinking. So we're all about rebuttal and trying to protect the fortress that is Christendom. Mm -hmm. And so that means we are speaking against certain cultural trends. We are pushing back against those things. I'm not saying there's not a place to do that. Um, but I think it, what it 
risks doing is it risks completely overlooking the fact that this issue is inside the church and not just outside of it. That it's not just a consequence of, you know, culture going to hell in a handbasket. It's it's a it's a consequence of the fall. Mm-hmm. It's a consequence of the fall. It's going to have its effect on on people generally. Christian people no less, perhaps. So I think, yeah, I think it just means we've missed that pastoral dimension and where we should have been thinking, let's make sure our own house is in order on this issue. Uh, we've actually, we've just had a message of negativity to the world rather than a pastoral care to the flock. And it, and it certainly reinforces the us and them distinctions that we were talking about earlier, that it, it almost frames the discussion that way. And it, it risks giving people the impression Christianity really is is defined by things we're against. Mm-hmm. I heard someone recently say they, they had been a Christian, someone in the media, said that, and they, they described their form of Christianity by saying, I was against all the right things. Hmm. And that that is that is Christianity is a sum of things that you're opposed to. Yeah, I sometimes talk about when talking about the way that we sometimes present the gospel, it sounds like Christian coming to Christ is about avoiding certain fates and certain consequences, when in fact it's about far more. It's actually about gaining a relationship that exactly. is the core relationship we're supposed to have in the world. And Absolutely. And when we flip that, the danger is is that is that when the person makes the decision, they're kind of done. You know, I've avoided all those things. Yeah, um, and it, it's, it's pharisaical. Yeah, exactly. He's it, defined their spirituality by avoiding the unclean people, the unclean places, the unclean things. And if you do all of that, you are fulfilling righteousness. Yeah, and... and Jesus said they didn't come to him. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, interesting. Okay, well let's let's talk about let, let's talk about some particular issues. I get your take on on some particular issues. What would you say? And I'll I'll keep this first question general. What would you say are some of the things we still kind of need to learn? Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> well, you know, this is this is every single one of us being being disciples. I mean, we always have much more to learn. Right. Um, I'm not pretending I don't have much more to learn on this issue myself. Good, goodness me, I do. Um, I think we, as a broader evangelical movement, I think, again, I think I'm encouraged. I think things are very different to where they would have been 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we still need to learn, and I know I still need to learn, how to cast the Christian stance on this issue in a primarily positive way that secular people can latch on to rather than simply as the Bible says no. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to think through how we offer people a compelling vision of human sexuality that accounts for and makes sense of the various prohibitions that, that are involved, but which nonetheless actually gives something an inspiring and beautiful vision for human sexuality that can capture the imagination that can provide a better kind of a better kind of story than the one our culture is giving us. Hmm. I would love to be able to do that way better than I, I've been able to thus far. Yeah, I, I, uh, this is again another generic thing that I say that I think fits beautifully here, and that is um, 
you used to be, because there was a Judeo-Christian net around, certainly Western culture, be able to get away with saying, well, this is so because the Bible says it. It's true because it's in the Bible, okay? And people would have enough regard for the Bible to take that seriously and to, and to incorporate that into the way they were thinking. That, that doesn't exist anymore. It hasn't existed in Europe for a long time, but it certainly is starting to fall away here. And so now you have to say it's in the Bible because it's true. And now the explanation is what makes this true? What makes this an authentic way to live, to go about life, et cetera? That's actually a harder thing to do. It, it, it moves beyond the imprimatur, you know, to actually this compelling vision, as you've talked about, and the explanation of why would God ask us to do this this way? Yeah. And I think that the urgency I feel on that is not, I mean, there's a massive urgency evangelistically, but I'm thinking of how few young people in our own churches have a positive vision of human sexuality that is biblical. And my fear is that there are a whole swathe of, of under 20 year olds in our churches that are not remotely convinced by what the Bible says. and. Even among those who are biblically convinced, they're not emotionally convinced. Hmm. And so one of the things I think, one of the tasks before us is to be showing how this, is, again, is just what you were saying. This is not just a biblical position, but it's good. Mm -hmm. And we, we want people to taste the goodness of God in this issue. Yeah, and I, and I, and I, and I think we, it so swims against the grain of the way sexuality is presented in the larger culture, that um, that it, if your if your approach is to say, well, we're best not to talk about what's going on in the culture and what's going on around it, and just leave it to itself, that then culture culture eats strategy all the time, uh, yeah. and particularly when there is no strategy, and uh, and so it's got to almost be addressed and faced and engaged in a full, fuller kind of way to counter all the signals that are coming, some cases subtly and some cases not so subtly, particularly towards young people. No, very much so. So I think we've got a long way to go on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Um, well, I feel like even if we don't have the answers, I feel like we're asking the right questions now. Yeah. Well, that actually raises another question that I think is important here, because sometimes I think people, when you walk into some of these difficult areas of which this is certainly one that the church faces, um, the attitude is, well, unless you have the answer, you shouldn't speak, okay? But I'm, I'm becoming more and more, the more time I spend on the cultural engagement side of things and wrestle with many of these difficult areas, I find myself saying, no, part of it, part of the journey of growth is hacking through the jungle, you know, you know is, um, is actually, you may not know where, what the exact answer is or what the exact approach is, but you, at least you have some sense of what the direction ought to be. And you're wrestling with the balance of the various factors that are in play, and 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 you are a disciple. You are learning as you go through that. And so this idea that we have to know exactly where we're landing before we can enter in, to me, uh, th that's actually a strategy that 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 almost puts you in uh, how can I say in pause mode because you you don't even you don't make the effort 
to advance in learning if you get there? You're so afraid of not having the answer. How important is, is the mindset of all this to the, to the process of the learning and the growing? Well, I think it, I, I entirely agree with you. It, it's one of those areas where I'm thinking, I know what I need to be better at. I'm praying. <laughs> that makes me pray to, to be better at it. Mm -hmm. But I'm also very, very aware that God doesn't wait for us to be worthy of being used before using us. Mm -hmm. He um, sticks us in those situations and we're off and running. <laughs> we say we're saved by grace, but we also we serve by grace. Mm -hmm. And God is great at using very imperfect vessels for his, for his ministry. So I want to do things as well as I can, but I mustn't let my awareness of my own limitations, as you say, kind of make me freeze up mm -hmm. if doing anything. Otherwise, none of us would ever, none of us would have any way of serving at all if we thought, I've got to wait till I'm really qualified, really able, until I've got this nailed. Actually, the people who think, yeah, I know everything on this, I've got all the gifts, I've got this pinned down, are going to be so haughty and arrogant, I don't think the Lord will use them. Hmm. So I think there's, a, there's actually a healthiness to feeling like this is beyond us, this is, this is above our pay grade, because, because it is. <laughs> and it, it's just a reminder that the power is in, is in the gospel. Um, God has only ever used very imperfect servants. Mm -hmm. So that, that really encourages me, because I know I am one. Okay. Um, that that's that, that's helpful. I mean, I and I and I think what we're one of the things that's hopefully being communicated across the entire conversation that we're having is there really is a need for some, um, I'm gonna say, genuine humility in walking in this space. Um, and uh, um, and even though uh, you know, I think we both would agree the scripture seems to be clear about about what the standards are to be and what the calling is to be and that kind of thing the 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 humility that comes with the walk is important in in setting the right uh, tone for the conversations that are required in in part because these conversations are deeply intimate and they are they are challenging in and of themselves just to begin with and we're treading on, for most people, what is very, very sensitive ground. And so that, that immediately means we need to have a carefulness and a tenderness. I always keep coming back to the fact that we're told of Jesus that a bruised reed he will not break. And there's a beautiful tenderness to Jesus that you can bring your most raw, painful bruising to him. And he won't crush you. Um... And we're to, we're to be like him in this, this area. For so many people, the personal narrative includes a certain amount of pain that we, we must be sensitive to. So I think having a, a posture of wanting to, to understand someone as well as we can, as much as they're comfortable sharing with us, we want to be able to listen to their story. And sometimes it might be the first step is not us zapping them with our our kind of gospel thoughts on this, but actually just being a really good listening ear, being someone who's interested, uh, someone who isn't treating them as a project, um, but is, is treating them as treating them as they really are, which is an image bearer of God. Yeah, you've got to build uh, 
the the credibility and the relational trust to go into those personal spaces that this kind of a conversation requires. Whereas I think sometimes we've been too quick just to fire off evangelistic grenades, mm-hmm. and we've not actually stopped and listened and figured out who it is we're, we're speaking to. Yeah, I, I say uh, one of the great tasks in evangelism, particularly with someone who's coming from a completely different worldview space than you are, is to get a spiritual GPS on the person and put your doctrinal and heretical meters on mute. Uh, you know, uh, the, and the point here is not to uh, uh, is not to deny that what how you're assessing what you're hearing, but there's a time and a place to have those conversations and to build the bridges so that those conversations have a chance of actually going somewhere is probably one of the most important things you can do in building a relationship with someone. I think so. Absolutely. Let me, let me, uh, let me, let me ask you a couple of other questions. Uh, uh, What are the areas that are kind of the in-house conversations that happen among believers what do you think those are, and what advice would you give us in how to have those internal conversations in a healthy manner? Yeah, the, the two immediate areas that spring to mind, and there, there will be others as well, but one is, what is the place and type of counseling that comes into play when we're, we're thinking about helping people? Is that there would still be a significant number of evangelicals whose immediate default setting is as soon as this issue comes up, you need counselling. Uh, we will counsel this issue out of you, or that is the primary need you have to move forwards as a Christian. That concerns me because I think that's treating this as an entirely different species of, of sinful temptation than, than anything else. What people most need is, is God's word and God's people, gospel community and gospel truth. So I think where does where does counselling fit in and within that the place of reparative therapy? There are still discussions. There will be Christians who who are appalled at the fact that I I have hesitations about reparative therapy. Mm-hmm. And I've I've already in their mind stepped over a red line that I don't believe in the transformative power of of Christ. So the the kind of the type and extensive change that we think is normative on this is heterosexuality and entailment of holiness. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it is. Others do. That's one area for discussion. Um, another area of discussion which has been far more I guess visible and, and pertinent over recent months is is the whole issue of, of identity to what extent is is gayness something that is theologically neutral, redeemable? Are there categories of that that we should and can bring into our existing Christian identity? So this is uh, how people actually label themselves when they find themselves in this situation, and how we should and shouldn't talk, should or shouldn't talk about it. So that that's a huge area where yeah. there is still significant disagreement. Mm-hmm. And, um, I've got I've got very dear friends on different sides of that. Yeah, I, I do as well. Yes. So I think that that's another one is is to what extent is to what extent is sexual orientation a helpful category, and then to what extent is whatever we mean by sexual orientation 
to what extent is that a matter of ontology? Is this is this like is it like an ethnos? Is this a race? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if so, you know, all those issues, there is still. Is it worth it in thinking about that one? Because actually, actually, when I asked the question, that's certainly one of the ones I had in mind, and I think it's the one that's in some, for some people the most contentious. Um, it, it, does it help to th- think through what each side is wrestling to affirm in the midst of taking the view that they take, so that the person who's comfortable saying there can be a label such as a gay Christian, you know, and and he's is it's it's an attempt by people I think to say I understand the experience and where you're coming from on the one hand, um, and I and I identify with with the challenge of gayness, if I can say it that way. Um, but being a Christian to me is is the more important of the categories, if I can say it that way, okay? Whereas the person who says, no, you shouldn't use that terminology at all, says, well, Christ is so determinative for this that to inject the gayness into it um, introduces a introduces a problem that God is actually in the process of trying to solve or something like that, because we know that, that uh, same-sex attraction is, is not uh, God's standard. Does it help to understand what each side is trying to protect in making the making oh, the certainly. And the trouble is we're often using the same or very similar terminology in slightly different ways. And so I've seen this most clearly, I think, over the question of is same-sex attraction sin? Mm-hmm. Because even the question, someone could be meaning one thing by same-sex attraction some people mean by it the very experience of, of lustful thoughts. Others are meaning the temptation as and when it comes. And still others are meaning the capacity to have that temptation. Right. Now, until you've landed on which one of those you're talking about, the answer is going to be slightly different. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there's a similar thing with some of the identity language when someone says, says gay. We need to figure out what are, what are they meaning by that term. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are they including under that? Mm-hmm. Uh, might be, I think, someone like a, a Wes Hill would use that term more broadly than other more conservative thinkers do, and say when Wes is talking about gayness being part of identity, he's not just talking about same-sex lust, he's mm-hmm. talking about other things too. So we, we, you're right, we need to listen really carefully and to make sure we're not just assuming we know what someone means, but actually we're sitting down and making every effort to think, okay, what do they mean by that and what do they mean by that? It can be a slightly pedestrian kind of process. Which means means when we're uh, doing that kind of assessing that rather than setting kind of this one-size-rule-fits-all expressions, actually thinking through what's actually being communicated and wrestling with that a little bit. I think so. And I, I prefer to think in terms of principles. Mm-hmm. Uh, what 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 are the principles behind which how we describe who we are? Mm-hmm. Um, both in terms of thinking through our identity as as those who are now in Christ, also thinking through to what extent we identify with the people that we're seeking to reach. All those things. But the Bible is not silent on and. 
I see differing principles as we as we look at Paul's kind of missionary strategy in, in Acts and that kind of thing. So, but I think the the, the basic thing we're we're both saying now is unless we understand what someone really means, we, we're not really going to interact with them in a in a faithful way because we might think, well, I'm reading into you, I'm reading my definition into your terminology, mm-hmm. and then arguing against what I think you would mean by that. Mm-hmm. Not really making sure I've heard what you mean by that. Mm-hmm. And even well, even when we do all that listening, there are still differences. Yeah, sure. Uh, but I do think it helps to understand. Uh, it makes all the difference in the world to think through what some why someone might be motivated to yeah. think through the different terminology than I might want to possess. What, what is the? I'm, I'm not assuming that because they do something differently to me, they must have some bad agenda Mm -hmm. these are generally good guys trying to do good things what is the good that they're intending from that and i might at the end of the day think well i i kind of want to honor their intentions i don't think that's a wise way of doing it so yeah Yeah. some of the differences are because we've misunderstood and misheard each other and others are because we have understood, and we still have some differences. Yes, and, and and in the midst of all this, and all the tone, and all the discussion we're having, w- there's an assumption that I think we share about the importance of having conviction about what it is that we do think the Bible is teaching in this area, and trying to yep. honor that in, in as in as appropriate a way as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sam, uh, I, our time is, is gone. I really appreciate your taking the time to to chat with us about this. And uh, our, our joke here in the States is is that somehow it just sounds more authentic when it comes with a British accent. So, uh, um, uh, I'll put my yes and I'm into that. <laughs> it baits me using a Texas accent. Let's just put it that way. Anyway, uh, we really do appreciate your uh, taking the time to be with us and helping us kind of think through uh, how to how to how to engage on what is probably one of the most challenging areas that the church faces today so thank you very much well it's been a real pleasure to be with you i'm I'm grateful for dts and for what you guys are doing uh, and uh, well, and thanks very much. And I want to remind people that if uh, they want to contact us at Dallas Seminary and suggest topics for the table that we might consider, uh, you can email us at, at dts.edu, the table, uh, dts.edu slash the table, and we'll be glad to take those requests and, and uh, you can help us think through the topics that we're going to discuss. We thank you for being with us, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.